just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and look at your word. We ask you for guidance and leading as we look at the direction of the study and what's going to happen. And we ask you to bless this time and guide us into what you'd have us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 5. I want to read verse 4 for context. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens of, were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that was, then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. Seeing then that all these things shall be, solved, be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? All right. Here we're getting a picture of the very end days. <laughs> All right. So it starts out in verse 5, For they are willingly ignorant of that by the word of the God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and, and in the water. And this is kind of an interesting thing. Willingly ignorant. And this willingly means to be actively, have an active resolution urging to action. Okay. So it's not just I am ignoring it and just trying to make it not real, but actively working against it. And that's what's going on in our day and age. There are people actively working against God in the area of creation, especially in this that they're talking about. Uh, and we've, we've looked at this. We've seen the various things when we've done studies on evolution and creation where we will pull quotes out from the leading evolutionists who will say things like, we know there's problems with evolution, but we cannot accept you know, the other alternative. We cannot accept that there is a God willingly, actively being ignorant and accepting something that takes much more faith to believe, much more uh, uh, difficult to believe, and yet, willingly, actively going against it. Our sinful lifestyle is at risk when we accept that there's a God. And people know this. And this is what he's saying. We, they know. And he gives a description. Basically, he's going back to Genesis. We had the heavens and the earth came out of the water. And that's what it said. Let the waters come back and the earth come out. And then the Earth sits in amongst all the water. And we, when we look at other planets, we see that how beautiful this is on, on, in our world. We have small land mass and all water. We don't see any water anywhere else in the universe. 
and none in the solar system that we have. There's no water. They're, they keep hoping they're going to find it in, in Mars so they can try to prove that you know, life started out in Mars and then came to Earth. But well, they actually they do because one of the things when we talk about evolution, we know that the sun is re, re, getting smaller. So if you go back trillions of years like they want to say the sun is, it would be closer to Mars and you would have to have had life on Mars and no life on Earth because Earth would have been too close to the sun. And as it retreated back, Mars would have been getting colder, Earth would have been drying out, and they go, well, they moved from Mars to Earth. And that's what they're desperately trying to find. Some reason that Mars had life in it. And why? Because they know that their science is falling apart improving evolution, so they've got to prove that we came from someplace else. And when I was going to college, the first time I heard this idea that Earth was planted by aliens and then they moved on and left us, I was waiting for the punchline of the joke in a science class. And after 30 minutes of him talking, I realized this idiot is serious. <laughs> You know, we can't find life or a reason for life on Earth, so it had to have come from someplace else, but we're not going to let God get into the picture. You know, we're not going to let God in the picture. So some alien civilization came to Earth and, and planted it. And the sad thing is, though, that it's being played out on television shows and the seeds are being planted in people's minds. And it's logical enough that it could possibly happen, but by the same token, you can't disprove it. And you can't prove it unless some alien comes and visits us and says, I'm the one that put you here. Well, this is true. That gets you into a whole other thing. Yeah. Someplace life had to miraculously start out of nothing, you know, from or have a supernatural start. So it, all they do is push off. They push off the reasons we can't do it here. Maybe there's a planet out there that violates all the laws of science that we know that life just spontaneously generates and then this, you know, you know you know, and that's what they're trying to trying to push off, all right. Uh, but here he's saying he's going back to the to the creation. He says the waters came up, the waters receded, the lands came up, and they stand in water. Now we look at this and we go, how did how did Peter know this anyway? They didn't even know of around Earth. They, you know, as far as they were concerned, there was more land than than water, and he's telling us that the land stands in water. Yeah, which is pretty amazing for somebody who didn't, you know, s supposedly ignorant of, of all sciences because they did not know the world was round theoretically. God knew the world was round and the Bible teaches that it's round and the educated knew that it was around. Peter is not a highly educated man. He's not a dumb man. But didn't they have Genesis then? Oh yeah, but Genesis doesn't, you know, didn't indicate what he's saying here. Okay. That the land stands in water. Okay. And Peter is a fisherman. He knows math. He knows business. He know, you know, when it comes to the sciences, I don't know how f entrenched he was in the sciences. Probably not. He's not the astronomer. He's not you know, out there staring at the stars and knowing that the world, you know, knowing mathematics well enough to know the navigation. And yet he says, the earth stands out and is in the water. Which we know in our case, if we look at the pictures of the earth from space, you know, it's described as a blue marble. It has more water than land. Uh, it's about a third land and about two-thirds water. An amazing planet that God has given us. We see no other evidence that any planet out there has that kind of an environment. And so he's saying that, and he goes, and verse 6, whereby the world 
that then was being overflowed with water perished. So now he's referring back to Noah. Okay, the world got so evil, so bad, and we don't know how many people were living in the days of Noah. I played with some numbers one time on a spreadsheet just to try to figure out what kind of numbers we were talking about. And I came out with the lowest number that I came out was about a million and a half, and that's with having people not only giving birth for about uh, 100 years and not having any more births for the next 800 years of their life. And I'm going, that is not right. But if you started really looking, these people had birth rates that lasted you know, four or five hundred years out of the out of the thousand and having a death rate, you know, I figured a death rate, you know, of 10 or 20 percent. There were still trillions of people around at the flood of Noah. And we don't usually think of it being that full. You know, we go, oh, it's only, you know, most people don't even realize it was 1500 years after the after creation that, you know, to the flood, you know, 1543 or 42. Uh, so we don't realize how long it was, and with long life spans, and probably long productivity spans, and probably no, you know, little to no war because there weren't, as far as we know, there weren't nations at that time. It was all one people, one thought process because it was one people, one thought process after the flood. So there probably weren't any wars to kill people off, and I don't know what the death rate would have been, <laughs> but you know, people got evil extremely evil. Most of the ones who died would have known Adam because he, only, you know, he lived to be 900 years old. The flood is 15. All right, so most of the people after that would have, would have known Adam, Father, Father Adam and, and Mother Eve. You know, they would have known them. They, were, they would have been familiar enough with them. And yet they were rejecting God and not following him. And God destroyed the world. And it says at that time, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. <laughs> and the, the sad thing is, we're getting closer to that in our day and age. People purposely, willingly rejecting God. Just as, you know, can you imagine going back before Noah? You have Adam and Eve still around, in, you know, having just died a few years ago, you know, as far as they're, for, they're concerned. Seth and, uh, not Seth, but uh, uh, Cain and his descendants are still following around. You know, you're, you're at a place where you've got people only four generations removed from Adam and Eve, and you're actively rejecting God. You know, that is an amazing thing to me when I think about it. And yet how evil they got in that process. So evil that God says, Everybody is turned away from me. And he gives grace to Noah. And Noah preaches for 120 years as he's building his little boat, <laughs> big boat, you know, and preaches to him for 120 years, and nobody gets on the boat with him. Nobody. That is how evil things were. You know, which is what reminds me is we in the church keep preaching the word and preaching the gospel. How little response we're getting in this day and age because people are just as the days of Noah. You know, you want to believe that, that crazy stuff? You know, if I believed in God, I wouldn't be able to go out and do the things I want to do. And that's actually the excuse people will give us when we give them the gospel. 
Well, I'm not going to give up my drinking. I'm not going to give up my sleeping around. I'm not going to give up my, my language. So you just keep your God and, you know, uh, I'm not going to give up. You do realize that there's concept. Well, I'm not giving up. I, I'm having too much fun with what I'm doing. The days of Noah. And I've heard that so much. It's so sad. You're giving up eternity in a perfect environment with God so that you can enjoy the temporal, short-term things and have an eternity in hell without God. And by the way, when you turn to God on earth, it's a whole lot more fun and, and blessed in this life anyway than all the fun you think you're having that you're regretting because everybody knows that they regret their their drinking binges and their sexual binges and their activities. You know, they think they're having fun when they do it and then they get into their regrets and then they drive them more into their, into their activities and then they'll tell you they're having fun. I used to love it when I would talk to people who had, you know, had a great party the night before. What'd you do? I don't remember. But you had fun. Oh yeah, I had, I had a blast. How do you know? Everybody told me I was the life of the party. Oh, okay. <laughs> I hope the pictures don't come out. <laughs> Verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of the ungodly man. And here he's saying, we have a world now after the flood. Okay, we've got to follow his logic. He goes, we had creation, we had the flood, which was destroyed by flood, the, the world destroyed by flood. <laughs> now we have a place, and it says that God has reserved it. He's reserving, he's guarding this world. This world deserves to be destroyed. Even where we're at now, this world deserves to be destroyed. We're not at where we are before God's patience is going to run out. You know, how much further we have, I don't know. I don't know how close we are to the days of Noah. I do know that people are getting more. Just in my lifetime, I have noticed how people are doing more and more of what's right in their own eyes. You know, in the, in the early 60s and 70s, people generally had a morality that kept them from just doing anything. The 60s started breaking that, that mold, and people started doing what's right in their own eyes, and it has only been getting worse over time. All right? When are we going to get to the place where God says, okay, enough is enough? I don't know. I don't know. It scares me just in, you know, in my, you know, 58 years of life to have seen how much it's changed. I can't imagine somebody that's older in their 70s, 80s, you know, that can look and see how much this world has drastically changed. Because you read the stories, and I'm not saying it was perfect back in the 40s and 50s and in the 1800s, but there was a morality in America that kept people at least kind to each other. There was a, there was a morality that said if you made a deal, you could just say you didn't need an ironclad contract you know, I will do this for you, you know, uh, just that word was enough. And if you shook on it, it was really that person was going to be there to do it. Now, you know, you can have a large contract and you may still not get the job done. You know, because if there's people who are doing what's right in their own eyes. The evil that's going on. And it is sad that it seems like the church has so little effect on them. But we do know there's an effect. Because you know, if the church wasn't here, how bad would this world be? You know, if our salt and light wasn't being drawn on things, it would be really evil. And we see signs that maybe God's got a revival on the, 
on the horizon. And I kind of like that idea that maybe there's a revival on the horizon that he's going to give us a little longer to draw the world to him. If not, he's going to take us home. We, we win either way. We as Christians win either way. Because if God comes and takes us home, we get to spend the rest of our life in eternity. If he gives a revival and time is delayed, we win because we get to see a revival and get to see a resurgence of righteousness crossing the world. I don't care either way. Do I expect a revival? And there's one part of me that does because there's certain things I look at the scripture and say there's certain things that have not a, don't appear to be fully accomplished yet and go, so on one side of me, I really want to believe there's going to be a great revival, but I'm going to prepare that there's not a revival. I want to re, uh, present God's word that there isn't because we don't know. And I would love to see a revival. I'd love to see a revival happen, but I would, I'm ready. I'm ready to go one way or the other. And we look at here and he says, he's guarding this world. It's reserved. And that means in a treasury. He's put it in a vault to, to wait until judgment. And this is a harsh one. He says, fire again, uh, reserved unto the fire against that day and the perdition of the ungodly. And that is the utter destruction. This is one of those words that they use. Well, see, God's going to destroy the the ungodly. Well, yeah, he's going to destroy their flesh and then send them to hell. Okay. Um, he's going to send them into an eternal fire. Perdition means, uh, perdition means utterly destroyed. And this literally is referring to the flesh. Because it's very clear in the scriptures that hell is eternal. All right. Uh, so this is, God is going to destroy all of the physical. Everything. The world, the heavenly, the the physical heavens, all of humanity, all of the animals, all the trees, all everything destroyed when he when he brings his final judgment. And he's been very patient, very patient with this world. Uh, You know, this is a perfect God looking upon a creation of his that is totally gone flawed. And, you know, we don't really understand what that completely means. If you have an area of expertise where you're really good and you, know, and you see all the flaws, I've talked about my painter friend that was trying to pull, you know, get good canvases at the, at the art store. You know, he wanted the perfect canvas, and he knew that he wasn't going to find one, but he looked for, he knew that he had to have as close to perfection on his canvases. And it was funny because I didn't notice any of the things. And even after he, note, even after he pointed out his, the imperfections, I barely noticed them. But this is the perfect God looking at a creation that has gone so bad and keeps getting worse. How long will he wait? I don't know, but his love keeps him from destroying all of his creation. It's the same thing when a parent has a totally wayward child and they really love that child. They may not be able to stand being around that child you know, because of the, what the child's doing or anything, but they still love that child and they're still hurt. You know, even, even with a parent who's disowned their child, they're that bad, they've just owned them, they don't want to have anything to do with them, they still, deep down, have a love for that child if they have any care at all. And most, almost all parents do. You care about your child. And I picture God looking down and saying, 
oh man, what, why are they doing this? How come they won't turn to me? I've shown them love. I've, I've died for them and they still won't come to me. They still won't turn their will over to me because they think what they want is more important than what I'm offering. And you know, this is not new to us because the angels did this. Satan did it. Standing in the very presence of God, the worship leader of heaven, <laughs> you know, seeing God and saying, it's not enough. I want to be like God. And not only that, not only just him falling apart, but taking a third of the angels with him that saw. I mean, humans, we kind of have a little bit of understanding how we reject God because we don't see him. You know, a little bit, you know. Why Adam and Eve did, I don't know. That's another story altogether. They were perfect. They, they saw God. They really knew God. I can understand in our day and age why people tend to reject God. You know, how, do you, how do you believe in this thing that you can't see? You know, you're not, you're not worshiping. You, you don't get to worship something that you see? You know, it's a tough world out there, and yet God is there and showing himself. God is in full control of everything that's going on in this world. Even the evil stuff. Why is he allowed the evil? Because of the fallen nature, he allows evil to, so that people will recognize that they need him and then be judged by him. We're made in his image, and it's the consequence of sin that, that causes all these problems. Okay, uh, When bad things happen... It's because, of, it ultimately is because of sin. Maybe not even our sin, but it's because somebody has sinned. Even if you have to go back to Adam and Eve, somebody sinned and put all of this evil into motion. And the problem with it is it grows and it gets worse. And the only thing that really holds it back at all is God stepping into lives and turning people to him and bringing light so that people can see the evil. And this has been the battle since the beginning. All the way through Noah, Noah got the righteousness. And then after the flood, we see Nimrod and Eber battling out with good and evil going in it. Nimrod's side getting eviler and eviler. And uh, Eber's side getting righteous, maybe not more righteous, more righteous, but you know, reaching out to God and, and letting God grow in their life and having that battle going on, and been going on ever since. Went to Abraham, went to Isaac and, and Jacob, and then through several of the kings where God has always had a godly remnant out there. And if it wasn't for the godly remnant, he would destroy this world. When will he come back? When the last person that's going to get saved gets saved, and we, he says, okay, we're gonna take them back, now we're gonna send judgment. And that judgment for seven years is going to be miserable judgment. And we're leading up as we go through this. We're leading up. He's, you know, Peter isn't going to talk about the tribulation in the millennial kingdom. He's going to jump straight from the day of the Lord right into the destruction of the world. <laughs> okay, he's not building a large case for eschatology, the study of end times. He's just saying God created it and he's going to destroy it. And it's his right to destroy it. And this is why people go, well, God is so loving, he's just going to allow us to do anything. Well, no, he is loving, and he's given us a lot of time to turn to him. But when it comes down to judgment, he is going to be right to do it. 
uh, in the in the Old Testament, it talks about the potter making up the, the clay, and when, he, when, it, when it breaks down or something, he has the right to destroy it and start all over again. That's God. He says, okay, we've given you 6,000 years, you know, well, 7,000 by the time he destroys it. We've given you 7,000 years, now we're going to destroy it and start all over again. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And love this. It's don't be unaware. All right. What is he trying to tell us? He's not literally trying to draw that, you know, one year equals a thousand years or a thousand years equals a day. There is some truth to this, I believe, that, you know, uh, I believe the world is about 6,000 years old because the Jewish calendar, because of the fact that God's out there and that he's going to reign for a thousand years. So I think there's some truth. And I think he picked a thousand for a purpose. All right. But I don't want to draw too close to that because it's, you know, people go, you know, and 7,000 years existence of the earth would be a one week period from a celestial, you know. But really what he's pointing out is God is eternal. God is eternal. Time to him is not that big a deal. And we as humans get to experience the same type of thing. Can you remember when you were a kid how long a year used to seem to last? Oh, man, it's been forever since my birthday. It's been forever since I had my birthday. You know, I wish it would be coming. Is Christmas here yet? Now that we're up in our 50s, 60s, 70s, I can't imagine what it would be like in the hundreds, but, you know, you know, it seems like, didn't we just have Christmas last year? Wasn't it just my birthday last month? Didn't we just have an anniversary? The years, from our perspective... Get, seem to get shorter. Now, we know that there's still 365 days, you know, with all the minutes and seconds involved in it, but, you know, because it makes up less and less of our lifespan, it seems to get shorter and shorter. Think of God from eternity. How fast must a, a, a year to him be? You know, seem. God said, wasn't it just the last second that we had a, you know, God is not worried about years. He's not worried about decades, centuries, millennia. To him, it's just a blink of the eye anyway, because he's eternal. You know, matter of fact, I don't even know how much of a concept he has of time because he's eternal. He created it. He knows all about it, but what does it mean to him? Not a whole lot. And as I've said, because of his omnipresence, he's, he exists in all of time at the same moment. You know, and this is the hard thing for us to fathom. We're stuck in time until we step out of time into God's presence. We are stuck in time. We don't understand anything about no time. And as a matter of fact, we're stuck in time that I can only go forward in time. I cannot go back and fix a problem, you know, get to the, uh, get to the uh, consequence of my sin and go, oh man, I got to go back and not do that this time. You know, we can't do that because we have no concept of what it means to be able to be outside of time. And yet God already, you know, you can almost hear him screaming in your ears sometimes when you're getting ready to sin, don't do that. The consequences just aren't worth it. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And we do it anyway. You know, uh, but this is what Peter's not just trying to say one day equals a thousand years, a thousand years equals one day. He's trying to make us understand that God is eternal. Get out of this mindset that it's been a long time since God said he's going to return. Get out of this 
mindset of it, well, you know, it's, it's God's, you know, the judgment's not going to happen because, you know, people, as he said, right back in verse 4, people are saying, where is the promise of his coming? It's always been the same way. You know, God, there's not going to be any judgment. People have been saying it for almost 4,000 years since the flood. No consequence, no consequence. And people are going, well, yeah, people are getting bad. People are doing evil. What's the greatest consequence since the flood? Lifespans were short, drastically shortened. That's a pretty huge consequence. Bodies that were built to last forever, that after the fall of man dropped to 1,000 years, are now were lucky to get to 100 years. And if you live to 100, maybe 120, 130 years, and you've lived a long time. But again, we want to be careful. He's not trying to say this measurement of time, but he's just trying to point out God's eternal. Time does not mean that much to him. So what he's, what he's kind of saying is, you know, hey, so it's been a long time. For, as far as God's concerned, maybe six days or less, and I'm going to say even less. In our day of measuring things in nanoseconds and everything, we're going to go, God looks at our lifetime as less than a nanosecond. You know, he's less than a millisecond. You know, the, the entire life of earth was just a little, not even a twinkle of his eye. <laughs> and a twinkle of an eye is measured as an extremely small, fast number. And the entirety of earth, from God's perspective, is nothing. Yeah. And that's what Peter is trying to say here. Quit trying to think that God's taken a long time. And he goes into why. Verse 9. The Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise, as some count slackness. Going back to these people who are saying, everything's always been the same way. There's nothing, you know, where's this promise? You guys keep saying God's coming. You keep saying that God's going to judge, but <laughs> it's, it's not happened. It's not happened. We're not worried about it. But is long-suffering toward us. I love this. God is long-suffering. And I've heard people go, well, you know, why is God waiting so long? I'm going, because I've seen so many people in their 70s or 80s that get saved. They deserve to be killed a lot earlier than they, than they did, but God was long-suffering. He says, he is not willing that any should perish. Now, this willing, willing means that he is also deliberately trying to not have people perish. Now, he's not going to force people. But God is going to make sure that when anybody stands before him at the white throne judgment, he's going to say, your conscience spoke against this. This spoke against it. This spoke. Nobody's going to stand up at the white throne judgment and say, oh, I didn't know I was doing wrong. Remember, you were only six years old when you took that first candy bar out of the store and you knew it was wrong and you ignored your conscience. You were only 12 years old when you slept with that person the first time and you knew that everything was wrong about it. You, know, you may not have some preacher have stood in there, but your conscience was there. The Holy Spirit was telling you. And he's going to say, you knew you needed something and you rejected. God wants all to come to repentance. And a repentance is to change your mind about something. Repentance isn't what we see most often. Well, I'm sorry I did it. All right, I'm glad you're sorry you did it. What are you sorry for? Well, I'm sorry I got caught because otherwise I wouldn't have to be telling you I was sorry. Well, no, that's not repentance. Repentance is to know that you're sorry and to turn away from what you're doing. That's where 
salvation really comes down to. I accept Christ knowing that I'm a sinner. He steps in and he shows me to be repentant and I turn away from my sin. And that's what God's working on us, to turn away. God, I don't want to do this anymore. And when we, get, when we truly get saved, we get that whole thing coming in where we get to the place where I don't want to do this. You know, it's not because I feel God's making me give it up or I feel I have to give it up. He changes who I am so that I don't want to do. And that's where true victory comes in, where God has taken that desire out of my life. And it's not even a, well, I, I just want to do good so that I can please God, that I can, I can have a good time with God. It is God literally just changing me. He has made us a new creation. He's, one of the great things is when, he gave, when we get saved is he gives us a spirit back. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were told the day you eat of the fruit, you will die. They died the day they ate the fruit. The spirit within them was dead. They were now body and soul, an animated, animated piece of flesh with a soul. And then they had to go before God with sacrifices and the blood and everything to have any life. We are the same way before we get saved. We're animated pieces of flesh from the soul. And when we get saved, we're born again, as, as Jesus told Nicodemus. You are made new. You get life. We get real, honest life the way we were created to be. We get a spirit, and God indwells us. What a blessing. I love being a Christian. I love being a Christian because I'm not just looking to heaven for life and peace and joy. He gives it to us here. Eternal life starts the moment we get saved. He, he puts the Spirit in us. He puts himself in us. And we start our eternal life that moment. And when we die, as Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with God. All I do is walk out of my body. The real me walks out of my body and I stand before God. Not as a ghost to haunt this world, but stand before God in a spiritual world, in a spiritual body, but no less real, and as a matter of fact, more real than the physical world that we think is real. And that's what we're looking forward to as Christians. Not someday I can start my eternal life when I die, I'll get to go with God. No, I start it immediately. And this is why we can tell when somebody really knows God many times, because they have a relationship. I was talking with somebody just a couple months ago and I was asking him do you know God uh, do, you, do you know Jesus well I believe in him I go I didn't ask you do you believe in him I go do you know him are you in a relationship with him he goes well that's a really good question I got to think about that one you know but you know this is where we are with God we know him we're in a relationship with him that changes who we are and what we will do and in verse 10, he goes with another but. <laughs> but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. Now, he's mixing two normal, normal statements. It comes as a thief in the night. 
In Paul's use of that term in, in Thessalonians, he's talking about all of Christians being snatched up, literally snatched up from this world. And he's making this very short. He's already talked about a thousand years being his day. He's, he's, he's shortened that time out. We leave and the world being destroyed. Not quite that fast. <laughs> Book of Revelation tells us we leave, seven years of tribulation, thousand years of rain, and then God destroys everything. All right, so we take the entire con uh, counsel of God and, and expand this time frame. He, he has kind of crushed it down. But, you know, and this is not a contradiction. It's just he's making his point. Creation, judgment, held in reserve, taking his people out and destroying the world. Okay, he's making a quick point, and we do this all the time. You know, I went this place. Now, I don't tell you it took me 13 hours to get there. I just, I went there. It wasn't important that it took me 13 hours to get there or 13 days or, or three months, you know, if you go back far enough. I'm, I went to England. Well, how'd you get there? Well, I went by boat and it took me 13 months, uh, three months to get there. But it wasn't important. I didn't, nothing on the ship happened that much. It was just a fun time on the ship. It's not important to my story. You know, this is where Peter's at. It's not a contradiction. He's not trying to say he doesn't believe in the millennial kingdom. He doesn't believe in tribulation. He's just saying his point is God created, he flooded the world, he's reserved it unto judgment, he's going to take his people out, and then he's going to judge it. All right? His points are, the rest of these sub-points are not important. Because if we really took that, in four verses, he's covered 7,000 years, and we go, well, what happened here, Peter? Don't you believe that life is existing? He's going, no, I'm just making my point. <laughs> All right? So you'll have people point to this and say, well, see, Paul didn't know what he's talking about, or Peter did. One of the two of them didn't know what they were talking about. No, they're making their point, and we need to take that point, not try to fit every single piece into this. Because we all do that. We tell our stories, and we leave out certain points, and we leave out because they're not relevant to the story. We're not lying to the people. We're just, you know, well, I went to England. I, I, you know, oh, by, I went by boat. Nothing, nothing happened on the boat of significance. But when I got to England, this happened. Okay. Or I went on the plane for 72 hours to go to, Ing uh, to, to India. Well, what happened on the plane? Well, it was boring. I watched a couple movies. <laughs> you know, uh, but when I got to India, you know, and these are what we have to understand. This is not a contradiction to Scripture. He's not trying to say there's no tribulation. He's not trying to say there's no millennial kingdom. He's, it's just not important to the flow of his argument. And then he goes, the elements, the very elements of this world will melt. It's kind of interesting that he says everything physical is just going to melt by fire. When I read this, I really do believe because we know that Jesus holds everything together right down at the, to the atomic level. The atom should not exist by the laws of science. You cannot put like charges together in a cluster in the middle and have them stick together because if, you know, if you've ever tried to put the like ends of a magnet together, it pushes away. An actual core of the atom is held together by God. Now science will tell you it's held by, uh, what, are they, what are they called, atomic cohesion. They don't know what it is. They know something has to hold it together because they know that it can't hold together. But they just think someday maybe we'll understand it, and yet the Bible tells us that he holds all things together. 
He also holds the electrons outside the nucleus because they should collapse into the nucleus because opposites attract. So we have protons together in the center that can't stick together, that stay together. We have electrons flying around the protons that stay where they're, where they're at without crashing into the proton center where they're supposed to be. And people wonder and they go, they don't believe in God. Just somehow magically, scientifically magic that we can't understand why an atom even holds together. At the end of the millennial kingdom, Jesus is just going to let go. And we think a hydrogen bomb is powerful. When the entire world's atoms are released, the entire universe's atoms are released, what an explosion. Fervent heat, like Peter tells us. To melt away everything, all of the physical gone in a moment. Because God just lets go of it. He no longer co keeps it cohesive. And it just disappears. When you look at the atom, we see the power of God. You know, it's an amazing thing to me. The more we look at the microscopic level of things, the more we see God. The more we look out at the wonders of the heavens, the more we see God. God says, I don't care whether you go micro or macro, I'm there. You know, even in your own daily lives, look around and see God, you know, see me. And God says, if that's not enough, look at the universe and you'll see me. Now, he doesn't say in the Bible, because we didn't talk about microscopes, but it's amazing to us, the more we get down into microscopic level, the more we see God. And it's just an amazing thing. God is everywhere. We cannot get away from him without looking at When we look at the magnificence of creation and how it's so perfectly fine-tuned, in spite of sin, it's wonderful as we see God. And he says, this is all coming. It's all going to be dissolved. And then verse 11 says, seeing then that, that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of person ought we be in holy conversation and godliness? Now, conversation literally is deportment, all of how we live. Okay, it's not just everything I say, which is a big part of it, but it's everything I do, my entire way I carry myself. He says, seeing that the physical is going to be destroyed, what does that mean to us as godly people? We should be living differently than everybody else. And this is important. This is one of the reasons the world looks at Christianity and says it's all a bunch of hypocritical fakes. Not because, you know, and not because we're actually looking at the real Christians who make mistakes. They're looking at the people who say they're Christian who are fakes. It's bad enough that when we as Christians fall, but we know we are because we know we're not perfect. And God knows we're not perfect. And people aren't really looking at those Christians because they realize that those people are trying. They're, they're generally decent people. When they say something, they're going to do it. And they, they care about people. And they know we make mistakes. I mean, it happens. But there are so many people that are truly hypocritical fakes because they're not really Christians. They're not living, they're not living in holy conversation. They're not living in godliness. And how do we know, how do we really get to know him? We get to study the word. We get to know God through the word and have it change our mind and our heart. And we live in that repentance of him changing who we are and people start to notice. 
And we all know, we all know people that are definitely Christians. They say, they, they try to live. We know they're not perfect, but we know that they've been changed and they're, and they're becoming more like Christ. And we all know people who say they're Christians and you look at them and you go, I know people in the world that are, that are more godly than you are. And that's a sad thing. And that is really a sad claim. And I'm not going to say they're not a Christian. They're just not in God's word. They're not following God. They're not letting God change them. It may be possible that they're a Christian. It's not my business to judge them. But when I look at them, I'm going, if you are a Christian, you're bringing heartbreak to the kingdom. You're bringing heartbreak to the kingdom. And, you know, the sad thing is just being a good person isn't going to get you into heaven either. I know many people that are very good people. They'll give you the shirt off their back. They'll give you anything they have. They will help you and do not know Christ and will end up in hell in spite of all their kindness, in spite of all their goodness. And people will look up, that person can't go to hell. They're really good. Not by God's standards. And this is what he's saying. How should we, because we know that this physical world is going to be destroyed, I should be living, looking to the spiritual. Looking to what really matters. Because that's all that really matters. We get tied up in this physical world, but this physical world's going to be gone. The apostles, you know, especially I love Paul when he goes, you know, hey, I've got all this suffering, but it's nothing because I'm looking at eternity. When all of this suffering, all this pain is going to be forgotten. We need to really get to that place where no matter what happens on this world, I'm not bothered. I'm not, I'm not going to be bothered by what happens on this world because it's temporal. What am I going to care about this world in 10 gazillion years from now? You know, oh, so-and-so hurt my feelings really bad 10, 10 gazillion years ago. I'm still mad at him. I hope that's not going to be a true statement. <laughs> you know, maybe if you're in hell, that'll be true. But when you're here in heaven, it's, you're going to be filled with God's love, and you're going to understand why things happened. But we down in this world need to understand, my feelings got hurt. Well, big deal. You know, honestly, you know, not, to be, not to be mean about it, but big deal. You know, your feelings got hurt. Yeah, what does it mean? Did, no, you're being kind to somebody may change their life for eternity by just being nice to them, forgiving them, loving them, even though they hurt you. And I mean, maybe they did it on purpose, literally did it on purpose. It's bad enough when we think they did, you know, our feelings got hurt when they didn't mean to hurt them. But this means we got somebody who's really mean, really nasty to you. We still need to forgive them. I love the story in The Cross and the Switchblade where Nikki Cruz, the, the mean gang member, you know, gets mad at David Wilkerson because he says, Jesus loves you. Yeah. And he goes, you carry that one more time, I'm going to cut you up into, I'm going to say 150 pieces. I don't remember how many he said. But, and David Wilkerson just looked at him and in every piece will say, Jesus loves you. <laughs> now, what inspired him to say that, I don't know, but it, it really drove Nikki crazy. But you know, for us, when we reach out to people, it's that love of God that can reach out to them. It's his presence that reaches out to them. And that's what's going to change hearts. Not my being kind to people, being nice to them, but sharing God's love. And the greatest thing we can tell people, and it has a powerful impact on the people, is Jesus loves you or God loves you. You know, because they're going to say, yeah, you don't know me. It doesn't matter. God still loves you because he knows you and he does love you. He died for you. you know, and it's very important for this. 
In verse 12, he says, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of, the, of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Hastening, making come quickly. You know, it's kind of, you know, kind of an interesting thing. He expects it. We expect this change. You know, one of the things we as Christians have to get to the point of living for eternity. You know, people have said, you know, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. It's the heavenly minded part that makes us earthly good in the first place. If we were earthly thinking, we wouldn't do anything for anybody. Before Christ came and changed this world, this world was a wicked place. Kids weren't cared for. Women had no rights. Uh, the strong prevailed. The weak got hurt. And if you weren't strong enough to be number one, then you deserved what you got in, in their mindset. You know, I listened to a story the other day from India. You know, and India still has a heavy caste system. It's not official anymore, but they have a heavy caste system, and that caste is part of their religious belief. You did bad things in your previous life. You came back as a low caste to pay your debt to society as an untouchable or as an evil person. And when you died there, if you lived, if you did well in that lifestyle, you might move up the caste or you move down into some kind of animal and then get judged for being an, you know, in that. That's all part of their religious part, but it also goes back to the flesh. You get what you deserve and don't treat anybody kindly. In India, they don't understand when Christians work to help people in the lower castes because they think they're really harming them in the long run, because when those people who had their help that they didn't deserve die, they're going to have to go even lower. And they don't understand this because of their reincarnation beliefs and everything. Here we're looking, he's saying, hasten, make things be greatly desired. I'm desiring his return. And for the, as we look at this, do we desire the return of Christ? I'm looking forward to the day of the return of Christ. I'd love to see the rapture on one side of it. But nonetheless, I'm still looking forward to the day that I die and I get to be in God's presence as well. I have no fear of death because I get to go to heaven. I don't have to worry about it. I can be like oh, so many of the saints in, the, in Fox's Book of Martyrs who embraced the, the burning flames. You know, if you read that book, there's several of them. They're... They were put on the prior, they're set on fire, and their, bound, their rope burned off, and they stayed in the fire rather than trying to get out of it because they're going, God put me here, I'm going to rejoice. And that touched people. <laughs> you guys are nuts, but I don't, you, you're not afraid of death. Most people in the world are afraid of death. Whether they want to say so or not, they were afraid of death because they don't really know what's going to. The atheist who says, well, I'm, I live, I die, I become worm food is still afraid of death because they don't want to become worm food. You know, what's going to happen to my reputation 800 years from now when nobody knows my name or realizes that I said stupid things? But for us as Christians, we should be earnestly desiring God's end. And that if we're earnestly, we're going to reach out to touch as many people as we can so that they're going to go with us. And verse 13 says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promises, look for a new heaven and a new earth 
wherein dwells righteousness. Our future is a new heaven, a new earth, where everything is perfect. And the accusation for us from the world is, you guys are just pie in the sky looking for, looking for a better place. Well, yes, I am, but it's not pie in the sky. It's God's promise. Right? God has promised. And they go, well, how do you know there's a God? Because he lives inside of me and he's changed me. Well, how can you believe that? Because it's me. I know what he's done for me. And that's why we, it's been said over and over, and I agree. Our personal testimony is our best testimony to the world. Because they can't disagree with me. Well, I don't believe it happened to you. Well, I'm sorry, it happened to me, and I know it happened to me. Whether you believe it or not, doesn't matter. It did happen. But your personal testimony will win certain people who really get to see you changing. And it's pretty amazing. They look at you and go, you never acted like that before. You never behaved like that before. What happened to you? Let me tell you all about what God's done in my life and be able to reach out and touch them. Verse 14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and without blame. Diligent. Exert yourself. How do we exert yourself? Not in fleshly activities to live a perfect life, but getting to know God. And again, how do we get to know God? We get into his word. We get to listen to the spirit. It is an amazing thing with, with it, and I've seen this over and over. People will tell me one day they can't read the Bible, they get saved, and the next day they make sense, and it's the greatest book that they've ever read, and they want to read more and more of the Bible, but the day before they, their salvation, they couldn't understand a word of it. It didn't make any sense. It was just a bunch of words. It was just literature. Then they get saved, and all of a sudden it doesn't become written logos word. Written, it becomes rhema, living, live word that is spoken and speaks to our heart. And that is the big difference. When we become Christian, it stops being just words on a page. That is when things start popping out of the pages at us and say, pay attention to me. Do this, do that. And it becomes live and active. And you know, we look at this and he says, when you live this way, you will be found in peace. I love the peace of God that passes understanding when everything's falling apart and yet you have the peace of God deep down. That doesn't mean we don't get a little anxious maybe, but deep down we know God is still in control. And that makes it easier to just turn it all over to him and live in peace. And then we're found spotless and blameless. That is because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, uh, 15, an account that that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to wisdom, gives unto him, given unto him that has written unto you. So he's referring back to Paul. Paul's given you letters about this already. Pay attention to Paul. Paul has already talked to you about this great peace. He's already talked to you about this, this way of living. But he says, God is long-suffering, and that is our salvation. Just imagine, I don't care how old you were when you got saved. What if God had taken your life the day before you got saved? For me, I'd have died on, you know, year nine in, or, or instead of year 10 when I got saved. You got saved later in life, you're 30 or 40. What if God had said, okay, I've had enough of you and taken you the day before? His long suffering. 
We've got to be very careful when we look and say, God, why are you putting up with that person so long? Maybe they're going to get saved on day 99 of their, and their, you know, of their hundred, you know, hundredth time. And then God says, see, this is, why, this is why I let them do all the things they did. This is why I was long-suffering, so that they would be able to be saved. And God keeps putting people in people's lives that says, here's God's word, here's God's word, here's God's word, all the way up until they, the moment they die. And I, and I kind of believe that even on the day they're dying, God puts somebody in their life that, that day. I can't prove that, but I have a feeling that God puts somebody in their life or a message or a radio show or something in their life the day that they're going to die, just one last chance. One last opportunity to turn before you're taken into eternity. That's a personal belief, and I can't prove that. I just, knowing God, I can really think that that would be his character. Today's your day. I'm going to give you, you know, you're going to wake up to somebody saying something on the radio. You're going to meet that annoying Christian that you never like to see who's going to be in your face again. You're going to have, you know, one more time I'm going to put somebody in your, in your path. I can't prove that, but I do believe it's true. Because that's God's loving kindness. Because we would have, if he didn't, he would have taken you long before that last person talked to you. And, you know, it is what it is. And it says, verse 3, And as also in his epistles, speaking in them of all things, in which are some things hard to, underst- to be understood, which they that are unlearned or unstable rest as they do other scriptures unto their own destruction. It's amazing that Peter recognized Paul's writings. And obviously he's been reading them and studying them himself. Because he goes, some of them are hard to understand. There's lots of things in the scriptures that are hard to understand. And this idea of resting, and he says unstable wrist, means twist and turn. And we've all met people who turn and twist the scriptures to mean what they want them to mean. Or not what God meant them to mean anyway. (laughs) And we want to be careful because when you're twisting scriptures, you're doing it to destruction. And this is serious business out there. When people don't take the word of God and twist them. And maybe to their own destruction, but oftentimes to the destruction of others. When, when we did our How to Study the Bible, one of the things we told you is that you need to make sure you interpret them in light of other scriptures and in context. And all of you know that when you ask me a question about a Bible verse, the first thing I do is I read about 10 or 15 verses of before and 10 or 15 verses after, and usually when we read them, the verse becomes clear. Oh, is that what it was saying? Yeah, we read it in context and we understand, in most cases, what it means. Sometimes we may have to go to other parts of the Bible to, to be able to fully understand it, but we don't twist it. That's what the cults do. The cults take verses out of context, twist them, and make them say all kinds of things. And unfortunately, we have many Christians that do the same thing, many Christian denominations, and we have churches out there that believe you can lose your everlasting, eternal life, you know, which very often makes me wonder, you know, what is their definition of everlasting life if you can lose it? It wasn't everlasting. 
But it also tells me they don't believe that it's all by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast, because if there's something I can do to lose it, there must be something I have to do to keep it. And I can't, because the Bible tells me I don't, I don't deserve it, and I can't keep it. It's Christ who keeps it. But the problem is, when you have that teaching that you can lose your salvation, people are trying to control you. You've got to follow these rules to be a good Christian. I'm not going to go there. If you're saved, you're saved. If you're not, you're not, and you know it. Now, your fruit may not be proving that you're a Christian. And if it's not proving you're a Christian, then you may have to look and say, am I a Christian? But if you are a Christian and you know you're a Christian, because you know you're in a relationship with God, you're saved. Plain and simple. I'm in a relationship with God. I have been since I was 10 years old, and nothing will ever shake that understanding that I know God. Nothing. Because I know him. Now, I may not live perfectly all the time, and during the, during the time that I walked away from him because I was so busy working as a workaholic, and if people looked at me at that time, they'd go, to you lost your salvation. No, I would just blinded my eyes and walked away for a little while, but he got me right back to where I was supposed to be. You know, I was never lost. I just wasn't living the life I was supposed to live. I was being a prodigal son at that time, and he brought me back. Not lost temporarily in this place. By my own choosing. But we have to be careful. Now, do I judge the churches that teach that? No, I feel sad for them, actually. Because I know a lot of good Christians who believe they can lose their Christian, their Christian uh, everlasting life. And I feel sorry for them. I hope that God will get hold of them one day and give them the peace and understanding that they will go to heaven. And I know some of them are very strong Christians. Very strong. Very good Christians. I just think they're twisting scripture drastically. Now, I know the scriptures will look at me that no, no, no uh, homosexual and thief and adulterer and fornicator will enter into heaven. I understand those verses. And when you look at them in the Greek, they make a lot of sense. Somebody who constantly does it. Constantly, with no conviction. I don't believe they were saved in the first place. So I have no problem with those verses. They just have a little harder problem with it because, you know, you think you can lose and get your salvation back. And I just go, wow, you know, I didn't do anything to get it. I can't, I can't do anything to keep it. You know, and you know, I feel sorry for them, but it's not a topic I'm going to argue with them. If they're, if they're a Christian, they'll, they'll find the truth when they get to heaven. You, you never could lose it. And Jesus might even weep. You live so much of your life trying to live to, as a Christian. And the sad thing is, because they did all of it for the wrong reasons, they probably won't get rewarded for a lot of what they did because they did most of what they did was just to keep their salvation for the wrong reason. You know, and it's a sad place. And here it says, they, do, they twist. Verse 17, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing that you know these things, be, beware, lest you also, being led away with error of the wickedness, fall from your own steadfastness. Okay? So Peter's giving a warning. You're, you don't, he says you don't fall away from your salvation. You fall away from your steadfast position. You kind of just fall away. You walk, around the, you walk around the hill where you can't see the rest of the flock and you get panicked. And it's all you're doing that takes you out of it for that moment, but you still, you're still in the field. 
Even though you don't know you're in the field, you don't know, you don't see the shepherd. It's not like we've run off into the wilderness where, where the shepherd can't see and find us. He's right there. He hasn't let go of us. And I love the picture. Jesus in, in John 17 says, Father, I have lost none that you've given me. They're in my hand and I'm in your hand. Okay. Judas was never one of his. He was in his disciples' group, but he was not one of his because he had not made that decision to be one of his. There are going to be probably millions of people who went to church from gradle to, to death that never knew him and but would have said, I'm a Christian. I haven't got, you know, they might even be a really good example. I didn't go out to drinking parties. I didn't go out to do drugs. I didn't have sex before I was married. You know, I didn't do all these things. I tried to live a really good life. And God says, you weren't one of mine. You never turned your heart to me. I, you were never placed into my hands through, through the decision of, of accepting the gift. And you could look good. You could really look good, but never got placed into his hands. Never entered into the field. You know, one of the things I've said before, you know, is Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me. He says, narrow is the gate that leads to life, and wide is the way to destruction. The good news for us is narrow entrance into life, but it broads out into a huge, huge freedom where we can do anything. The wide road to destruction has one destination. It's how do we round up, how do the farmers and ranchers round up their, their herds that are all out here when they're ready to round them up? They, they just move them into a, to a very, very wide fence that goes narrow and narrow until it gets to the chute that leads into the, the pen or the truck that leads them into, into the slaughterhouse. That's what God is talking about. Wide is the gate, but narrow is the destination. Or we can start out with a narrow uh, start and end up in all the freedom that God gives us. You know, with true liberty. And that's what we have to understand. You know, people go, well, if I become a Christian, I've got to go through that really straight, narrow gate, but man, I don't want to walk the rest of my life with that. Well, the good news is you won't. You'll be given freedom. You'll be given liberty. You may not want to go way out into the into the wide fields, you know, but God will say, you're my child. Here's, here's everything that's open to you. The wide gate leads to destruction, which means it narrows down. And that's something for us to be able to understand. He says, you may fall, you know, you may err, and this is mental strain, okay? His error is mental. And fall from your steadfastness. He goes, and he says, you know, beware, don't do this. And then the last verse says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory from now and forever. How do we grow in grace? We study God, we get to know God. And then the part of growing in grace that we don't like, he puts us into trials and says, is your dependence going to be on me and what you know? Or are you going to throw it all away and try to live it on your own? And this is the promise he gives us. 
God gives us grace as we get to know them and then he get to know him and then he runs us through the trials. And then in the middle of that trial, he steps back and says, this is your test. What are you going to do? Are you going to believe what you know or are you going to reject it? Chuck Smith had a saying, he goes, don't reject in the darkness what you learned in the light. What he's saying in that is real simple. When you're in the middle of the trial, don't throw away what you know, thinking that it's not right. And this is what we have to do. We stand before God. We get taught by God. And when we're in the trial, okay, God, don't understand any of this, but I'm just going to stand on what you say is true. And that's why I say Romans 8, 28 is one of my favorite verses. And I actually have said to God, God, I don't understand how this could be good, but I know that you said it's going to be for good. I know that you are in charge of all things and that you are the one in control. So I'm going to just believe that it's good. Now I say that I do it more often than not, but I don't do it 100% either. There's sometimes when I go down the road a few days in, or weeks and go, what's wrong with me? God, this is yours. <laughs> I get to that point where I go, God, this is yours. You promised it's going to be for good. I will get to that point because the word, the word will always pop into my mind. It may, sometimes it's almost instantly. You know, not as much as I'd like to be instant. Sometimes it's you know, a little ways down the road, but I, but I do get to the place where I go, God, it's yours. You allowed it. You allowed it. And being able to hold on to those two truths, for me, are the most strong thing to grab hold of. God is absolutely sovereign. Nothing happens that he doesn't allow or, or put into my place, and that all things are for my good. Even when it looks like all hell's breaking loose and, and, and God is not in control, I know that he's in control and that he's allowed it and that it's for good. And when I don't recognize that, I go back to the book of Job and say Job was in that same boat. He didn't know why things were going on and going, going through it, but it did work out to good. God blessed him again. God always has good in store for us. Always. And it may be eternal. Ultimately, good will come from the reward of us going through all the trials and tribulations. That's what Paul would understood. You know, I thank you, Lord, for these light afflictions because what are they in comparison to heaven? Most of us wouldn't have gone through what Paul said and saying, thank you for these light afflictions. We'd have gone, God, what is wrong with you? Did you, did you lose your head? Did you, did you leave me alone? You know, but his mind was, God, you know, I'm just going to serve you. And the rewards are in heaven. Now, the good news is Paul also had rewards on this world. He saw blessings. He saw, saw all kinds of things done for him and, and around him. He saw God working. But his ultimate goal was, God, these are all temporary. All these earthly blessings are going to disappear. They're going to go away. The heavenly is eternal. And we get our blessings in heaven because of what we go through here. And what we go through here sometimes gives us great blessing here on earth as well. God, you know, that person was really mean to me for 20 years, but uh, they finally got saved. <laughs> God, I guess it was all worth it. Can we really get to the place where we go, God, it's worth it? I was dealing with this. I tried to get that person to get saved, and they abused me for 60 years. But look at that. They got saved. God, was it worth it? What's the value of a soul? One soul, what are we willing to go through 
for one soul to come to Christ. That is an important consideration for me. All right, how much abuse will I take from that person if just maybe they'll go to heaven because of it? How much will I allow that person to, do, to say and do miserable things to make me look like a terrible person if maybe God will use it to convict them and bring them into the, the kingdom? What is the value of one soul? What am I willing to let God do to me? Job's story is one of those stories. Job was, Job was learning a lesson. Job literally believed in the prosperity gospel. That is what he taught the guys that had, that had come back to comfort him. He was their teacher. They were his disciples. They came back repeating his words to him. Which is why when you read it closely, he keeps going, I know what you say is true. It's all a very poetic flow. You know, but I am not guilty enough to have deserved all of this. God is trying to teach Job truth, which then allows his learners to learn truth, and then God gets to bless all of them <laughs> at the end of the tribulation and trials. Usually when we go through trials, God is trying to make sure, do we believe what we believe? And if we believe a lie, show us that it's a lie and teach us what to believe in the future. That's what trials are all about. Do you really believe? Or is what you believe even true? You know, God, I've got all my scriptures. These are my scriptures to prove this. Oh, well, this trial's kind of messing, up, mess, messing with my mind, God. Oh, I really didn't? Oh, these are the scriptures you want me to pay attention to. Or I'm going to hold on to these scriptures really tight and just say, God, thank you. Don't understand it, but thank you. Either way, God is teaching. He's strengthening us. He puts us in the flame to strengthen us. In metallurgy, they put the iron into the flame and, and pound it, and then they quickly cool it off, which strengthens it. And they keep doing that over and over until it gets greater strength than the iron alone ever had. And then we've learned to be able to add other metals together and really make them strong so that we can make very sharp knives and razors and everything out of very sharp materials that can be paper thin and yet very sharp because we've learned to temper them with, with fire. How does God change the coal into a diamond? He puts coal under heavy pressure and it becomes a diamond. What is God trying to do to us? This goes back to your example earlier, Mark. I think more that we're coal and God puts us under the pressure to turn us into the perfect diamonds <laughs> rather than starting out as an imperfect diamond. You know, he makes us perfect through the pressure he puts us under. He draws us closer to him by the pressure he puts us under. He, he makes us understand that he is true by the pressure he puts us under. And we look at, as humans, we look at pressure and say, wow, I must have done something awfully terrible to deserve this. Well, maybe, but probably not. Probably not. Consequences come anyway. If you sin, you're going to have consequences. But oftentimes the pressures that we feel is God saying, what do you believe and why? How, how come? How are you going to work this out? And we need to just turn our lives over to him in a very strong way. All right, let's close in prayer. Sorry I went over, but I wanted to finish this. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your, for your love and care. Lord, help us to stand in you during all trials and tribulations. Help us to see that you've got a reason and purpose for the things that you put us through. Help us to always have our eyes and minds focused on eternity 
not on the immediate. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.